Welcome to This Osteopathic Life. This is Dr. Amelia Beakey. I am honored to share with you the philosophy that has underscored my personal and professional life and explore how osteopathy truly is for the health of all things. I see these principles in action every day in my varied roles as a physician, a parent, an athlete, a writer, a musician, a coach, and an entrepreneur, and hope they will light the way for the path to your best health. Please note that while I am a physician, this podcast is intended to share general information and encourage discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. The content provided in this podcast and in any linked materials is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice. Thank you for joining me for episode two. Today we're exploring the history of osteopathic medicine. I hope you enjoyed the first episode, and if you didn't have a chance to listen, please do go back as it sets the tone for our goals with this podcast. And I do think that it's important to know where we've been, where we began, where we are, to better understand where we're headed and to figure out how to get there. I'd also like to help clarify some of the misconceptions or confusion surrounding osteopathy And we'll do that as we explore the various tenets over time in the next few podcasts. But today we're really looking at a timeline of understanding where osteopathy began, the context of how it began, where it's gone over time, and where we are in the present day. One thing to consider in the origins of osteopathic medicine is that it's a distinctive form of medical care. And some people think, is it the technique Is it medical practice? And for me, and for many of my colleagues, it's really about the philosophy of osteopathy. That all body systems are interrelated and dependent on one another for good health. That's truly part of the foundation, the core, the common thread that's held through all of osteopathic medicine. And so as we go back to the beginning, osteopathic medicine officially began June 22nd, 1874, by Andrew Taylor Still, MD. And Andrew Taylor Still, or A.T. Still, or Dr. Still, he's often referred to, was born in Virginia in 1828. And if you think about the context of that timeline, that's when the typewriter was invented. That's when the first Oxford boat race happened. This was, you know, a while ago, and not that long ago, you know, depending on your vantage point. A.T. Still was the son of a Methodist minister and physician. And the importance of that is that from an early age, he was exposed to the concept of spiritual and physical health. As he observed his father as a young boy and eventually as an apprentice in medicine, it was very clear that you couldn't separate the treatment of a person's body, mind, or spirit that health depended on all of those being addressed and how they influenced one another. Eventually, Dr. Still achieved his certification from the College of Physicians and Surgeons in Kansas City and Missouri. But even during that time, he found a lot of lack in the medical care of the time. And he had a lot of questions more than he found answers and was a dedicated student to the why which is a concept we hear a lot in modern times. You know, start with the why. And that was a big driver for his practice and the development of this new philosophical journey into medicine. 
He served in the Union Army during the Civil War. And for him, you know, the big moment of exploration and of seeking other options for medicine came in 1864 when he suffered the tremendous loss of three of his children dying from spinal meningitis. And even on a much deeper and more personal level, he found himself asking why. What would cause these children to come to their death, you know, if the same virus or exposure occurred for all members of the family, why did some of them survive and some not? And he began this exploration of what interrupted the capacity for the body to heal. And it led him to consider structural interruptions. Were there past traumas that led to that? And later, combined with an experience himself where he experienced headaches and lied down on a rope swing and essentially decompressed the occiput from the cervical spine and relieved the headache, he thought, oh, there is a relationship between these symptoms and health experiences I'm having and the structural aspects in that continued to promote his seeking, his question, his study. And so continued this fervent study of the human body, especially looking at anatomy, you know, exploring cadavers and really seeking relationships in the body and trying to understand what promoted disease, what prevented disease from being overcome and what capacity the body truly had. It's important to remember at this time what the other treatment modalities were in what was considered modern medicine of the time, allopathic medicine, which often involved treating with the opposite. You know, if someone had a fever, bloodletting was meant to be the option to take away um, the potential source of infection. And certainly it was discovered that these weren't appropriate options, that these were actually harmful for patients more than they were curative of the diseases doctors of the time were trying to address. Now, the use of leeches in medications that were soon realized to be poisonous and toxic ultimately were shunned by all. And A.T. Still was one of the early questioners of why we were utilizing these treatment modalities and that they weren't appropriate, that they were doing more to interrupt health than they were doing to serve it. Thinking comparison time-wise, he was certainly ahead of his time in shunning these treatment options and seeking other choices for promotion of health. In comparison, aspirin came onto the scene in 1899. Antibiotics made their first appearance in 1935. So that seeking for the other, you know, he was ahead of the curve. And at the time, homeopathy was also a common exploration for those seeking something else versus those commonly accepted treatments of the time. Thinking of the phrase osteopathy, as he began to formalize his experience of study, as he realized he needed to make it available and teach it to future generations, you know, he did see a lot of value in the structural system and the relationship between the structure of the body, the alignment in the body, the relationships of the tissues of the body to the capacity to maintain health or to overcome disease. And so osteopathy came from the origin osteon, meaning bone and pathology study of disease, and was established as this alternative to current medicine. 
Again, looking at other comparisons of what was being explored at the time included hydrotherapy, magnet therapy, and other concepts where the body was viewed as a unit in manual treatment was applied to improve health. And doctors still drew on many of these concepts and became very focused on the obstruction of blood flow causing disease and the influence of mechanical restrictions on the whole system and how reducing those obstructions and taking away those restrictions allowed for optimal blood flow and for health to reign free. And in my study of osteopathy, it's always been important to me to hold true to the concept that the body is capable of being well and sometimes needs some help to overcome exposures or traumas or restrictions or negative inputs that interrupt that capacity. But it's not necessarily about healing the body or curing disease, but rather facilitating those processes and capacities that are already present in the system and allowing the health to reign free. And sometimes it seems like semantics or a slightly different vantage point, but to me it's critical in really holding true to what osteopathy is, what it means, and how it can be applied. So certainly Dr. Still explored spinal manipulation and its impact on alleviating systemic illness by, again, harnessing the capacity of the body to be well. In osteopathic medicine, as he explored it and formalized it, there was still a place for the use of medications in surgery, often for poisoning or for trauma. But he was very hesitant, and again, thinking about what options were available during that time to utilize these as first line, certainly, and always in the position of a skeptic with a healthy dose of mistrust that led him to make conscious decisions on what would be appropriately utilized and appropriately taught um, in the osteopathic system. After 10 years of study and focus and development, Dr. Still opened his first school, the American School of Osteopathy in Kirksville, Missouri, in 1892. And this was after multiple attempts back in his home land in Virginia and in Kansas, and he was rejected on many levels. You know, he was accused of quackery in the time for rejecting, again, what the social and professional norms were. But he stayed true to his principles that the musculoskeletal system had a vital role in health and disease, that the body contained all it needed for proper health and excuse me, for total health and with proper stimulation by correcting structure, he could improve function and the capacity for healing could be greatly improved. You know, augmentation of what already existed. And he also was one of the early developers of preventive medicine, treating the whole person and not just disease addressing trauma before it manifested as a systemic illness. You know, if somebody took a big fall, doing a structural exam and applying treatment as is appropriate so that the body could continue with appropriate arterial and venous blood flow and lymphatic drainage and nervous system function so that that traumatic incident that might have structurally interrupted the system didn't have a chance to set in and create further illness. So the school opened in 1892 in Kirksville, Missouri. And Dr. Still was very committed, lifelong, to anti-discrimination on all levels. You know, he was active in the Civil War 
and the abolition of slavery, he worked with the Native American populations, learning from their practice styles and concepts of healing. And he firmly believed that women had a seat at the table in medicine. And in that first class of 21 students, there were six women. And that was compared to nationwide, 5% of women enrolled in medicine. And often those were in schools where women were kept separate. And this was a fully integrated class. He found it important to write down his findings and developed the Journal of Osteopathy in 1894. And certainly, as with any time you're challenging the norm, there were conflicts with the establishment and the state medical associations didn't want to give licensure to osteopaths. And it wasn't until 1897 that the Missouri State Medical Association did allow that right to practice for DOs. In that time, the AOA, the American Osteopathic Association, was formed for oversight. And in 1901, the Journal of the American Osteopathic Association was also formalized in order to keep track of studies and document findings and expand access to information for students of osteopathic medicine and the practicing physicians. Moving forward, in 1910, the Flexner reports examined medical education and demanded improvements, and that included College of Osteopathic Medicine. So expanded facilities, expanded the length of instruction, improved the quality and comprehensiveness of the basic sciences being utilized. In 1915, the American Osteopathic Association ultimately required a four-year College of Osteopathic Medicine expanding out from the original two-year program. In 1917, Dr. Still died. In 1929, the implementation of pharmacology and surgery into the osteopathic curriculum took place. And perhaps this required his passing, or perhaps it was just with evolution of the time. Again, thinking about the advent of use of antibiotic medications coming in 1935, implementation of pharmacology in 1929 was still fairly early on in the process of using and developing chemicals and medications to treat disease. In 1936, internships were added to the training for osteopathic physicians, and in 1947, residencies were added. So initially, there was a lot of the apprenticeship model and utilization of that one-on-one experience with a practicing physician and you know, learning on the job, hands-on treatment literally and figuratively, particularly for osteopaths. In 1957, the U.S. Department of Health, Education, and Welfare recognized the AOA as an appropriate accrediting body for osteopathic medical education. And it's interesting to look at the change in the curriculum and the quality of the training and the quantity of training that DOs gained during that interval from 1935 to 1959, it expanded from 862 hours total in training to 2,214. In 1966, DOs were granted equal recognition in the military to their MD counterparts. In 1969, the first state-supported College of Osteopathic Medicine launched at Michigan State University. And by 1973, DOs were eligible for licensure in all 50 states. In some ways, that could be seen as slow growth, but at the same time, to go in 100 years, 
you know, maybe two to three generations from no recognition, no capacity to practice to 100% in your country is a pretty big deal. That's pretty fast progress. In 1991, DOs were accepted for inclusion into the American College of Graduate Medical Education Training and Recognition of Osteopathic Medical Licensure. So this meant that MD or medical doctor or allopathic residencies would recognize osteopathic licensure and allow DO students to matriculate into their residency programs. In 1995, there's the development of OPTIs for accrediting academic sponsorship of graduate osteopathic medical education. And it was interesting because osteopathic training often took place on a different level than the allopathic counterparts. And again, different, worse than, different, just different. These academic hospital and community-based settings were more diverse. They weren't the traditional large tertiary care centers. Um, And we'll see later how that comes into play for the evolution of osteopathic medicine. By 2007, osteopathic physicians had full rights to practice in 45 countries. And at that time, they also integrated the traditional osteopathic internship into residency programs. So even now, osteopathic medical students can complete a rotating internship, complete their three rounds of licensure, and hang a shingle and practice medicine. Now, for a lot of insurers, they want residency completion and board eligibility or board certification in order to be recognized on an insurance panel, but not all. And for some physicians who choose to open a direct pay or cash-based practice, that internship year and licensure is really all that's needed. And that still kind of harkens to the historical method of training in the apprenticeship model. In 2011, the AOA approved ACGME training as interchangeable. And this could be seen as the beginning of the beginning or the beginning of the end, depending, again, on your vantage point. And over the next three years, through a number of discussions, it came to pass that the AOA and the AMA developed an agreement for the merger of graduate medical education to a single accreditation system And that's a lot of words to say all residencies, so all postgraduate training, all the training that every medical student who graduates, if they elect to take up a specialty from family medicine to OB to neurosurgery to cardiology, will come under one umbrella of the ACGME, essentially the MD or the allopathic training programs. And from one end, that can be seen as opportunity. Doors that were previously shut to DOs have now been opened and doors for MDs who might not have known about osteopathic medicine until they had completed medical school and entered graduate medical training could now have an opportunity to participate. It could also be seen as the end, you know, the end of an era, the end of that clear distinction between osteopathic and allopathic medicine and how residency training is approached and how the philosophy is adhered to in that timeline And I tend to sit in the latter camp, and I do have some concerns about what that means. 
not only in philosophy and implementation of training, but also the style. You know, we mentioned earlier that osteopathic training often took place in a different setting. And some of that was because initially, before we had full practice rights in all 50 states, um, there was the creation of osteopathic hospitals and this kind of separate but equal practice of osteopathic versus allopathic medicine. And these hospitals were often smaller. They were in a community setting. They were oftentimes in an underserved area. And the training just took place on a smaller scale. You know, it still had that flavor of the apprenticeship model where perhaps a medical student was working with a physician one-on-one in various specialties, family medicine or ER or OB or surgery. Um, But they were right there in the mix. They weren't necessarily in that hierarchy of intern to resident, to senior resident, to chief resident, and five steps removed from the experience. And I don't necessarily think one way is right or wrong or better or worse. And certainly many depend on the person and how they learn. And if you're better hands-on, if you're better in the didactic nature of a curriculum or feel more comfortable in that hierarchy that you can see where you fit and matriculate up the um, ladder over time. But for me, I saw tremendous value in training in an osteopathic formerly osteopathic hospital, but in a community hospital setting, where as a medical student, as a third-year medical student, I was one-on-one with my attending, so with my practicing and specialized physicians and all my rotations, and I was in the mix. You know, I was delivering babies, and I was first assist on surgeries, and I was first in the room in the ER to assess patients and on rounds, you know, pre-rounding with development of notes and a treatment plan that I would present to my attending And it made such a big difference in my experience. And I think it's worthwhile to have that choice. Again, academic hospitals and tertiary care settings are valuable and necessary in their advancements that are certainly made in those settings. But it's not for everyone. And I think sometimes having that diversity of choice and experience can be truly valuable. And I'm curious to see where it goes as the rules in the mandates of the ACGME requirements for residency, most likely will snuff out a lot of these small programs, you know, for issues of funding and faculty and, you know, requirements that just can't be met if you only have six residents. But those six residents could become six amazing specialized physicians who would go forth and, you know, treat osteopathically. So it remains to be seen. And I'll find where I belong in that process. But that's an episode for another day. It is very interesting to learn that of all the residencies, two new review committees were established for osteopathic neuromusculoskeletal medicine and for osteopathic principles and practice. And, you know, in some ways it's a little hoorah for my relatively small specialty that because there was no MD or allopathic counterpart, we did get our own zone. So I hope that means you know we'll rise up and be strengthened and show opportunity for MD students who really would do well to practice more osteopathically and expose those principles for the merits that they have in any specialty for any physician to really augment and improve care and truly honor the capacity for health in all individuals. So at present... 
We have practice rights in all states, unlimited rights in 65 countries. There are 74,000 osteopathic physicians practicing in the U.S. in all specialties, and 20% of medical students present day are DOs. There are leaders in all avenues of medicine, and schools are opening sometimes faster than we can handle the graduates that are coming from them. And so osteopathy has a presence, and some prefer not to use the term osteopathy because that often refers more to the origins and to the non-U.S. trained DOs who are not fully licensed physicians, and that's an important distinction, again, that we'll address in a future episode. But through it all, through this evolution, through all the develops in medicine, I mean, think of the number of prescription medications you could name right now that didn't exist in 1864 when doctors still began his journey. But think about the concept that all systems in the body are interrelated and that the structure of our body can influence the function of all the systems. And by addressing and applying comprehensive examination and appropriate treatment when indicated to the system to allow the health to shine through has been consistent and is reliable these 125 plus years later is pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing for a doctor still to have challenged the norm to have developed these principles way back when and for them to have stood the test of time and the evolutions of medicine, and to be able to live effectively alongside them. Again, still a place for medication and for surgery. Not necessarily always first line, oftentimes in a complementary fashion. And that osteopathic philosophy can be applied in any specialty, to any patient, at any time, because it's promoting the health. And so here we are today, And by 2020, all postgraduate training will come under this ACGME rule, and we'll see what that means. I hope that it means those who still fly high the banner of osteopathy will do so with a little more fervor, and those who might not know about it will be exposed to it through the integration of those programs, and that perhaps organizationally and institutionally We need to be a bit more robust in our expectations for ourselves and our capacity for organizational structure, but also to stand firm behind these philosophical principles and their implementation into practice that is proven to be effective for the improvement of the health of our patients, honoring those inherent capacities over time and be more dynamic and direct and clear and make ourselves known and harness the bravery of our founding father of osteopathic medicine and continue to ask why, continue to seek, continue to challenge the social and professional norms when they don't seem to honor the health, when it seems like there must be a better option and be willing to be thought a little crazy as we make that journey into the exploration and see where the future of osteopathic medicine can go. In future episodes, we'll explore the tenets of osteopathy in greater detail 
seeing how they apply to medicine and the care of patients, but also to other aspects and avenues in life. So I hope you'll join me for this osteopathic life going forward. And send me any questions, any thoughts you might have, any feedback. And we can continue to develop this podcast and all programming to be whatever it is you need it to be as we serve the best health of all things. Thank you for joining me. This is Dr. Amelia Beakey on This Osteopathic Life.